Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 11, The Firebolt. Harry didn't have a very clear idea of how he had managed to get back into the Honeyduke cellar, through the tunnel, and into the castle once more. All he knew was that the return trip seemed to take no time at all, and that he hardly noticed what he was doing. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. For those of you who've joined us on Patreon, we are going to have a very important conversation in our Every Flavored Bean today, which is, what is it like to care for a hippogriff who is staying in your one-room hut? We're really going to get into the practicalities of it, right? I mean, in this chapter, we see Buckbeak, you know, just living his best life with Hagrid. But what does that look like on a day-to-day basis for Hagrid? That's It's something that we want to know and that we're going to discuss in our Every Flavor Bean. So you can join us on Patreon to hear that at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. And for those of you who don't join us on Patreon, we're so glad that you're here with us now. Matt, it's your turn to tell us a story. And the theme this week is pride. What story do you have for us? As I reflected upon what story to tell for this week, Vanessa, I came to like realize that pride is not a thing I am comfortable with in myself. And that's maybe something I need to reflect upon. <laughs> we should maybe talk about in this episode. But I'm going to tell a story about when I felt pride in one of my children. So four years ago, we got a new puppy, Suki, who was our current dog. She grew up. <laughs> She's our current dog. <laughs> we got Suki just before Christmas. And it's a 
harrowing time with three young children and a puppy. There's lots going on and lots to do, and everyone has needs all the time. And especially in the month of December, if you're a family that celebrates Christmas, it is a very busy time. And so to buy ourselves some time, one day in the middle of December, when we had this you know weeks-old puppy and our small children, we decided to put our kids in front of a movie just to get us two hours to do some stuff around the house, right? So we put the kids in front of a movie that I think is from the Airbud franchise called Santa Paws. <laughs> it's, you know, I think it's a fine movie, maybe for some children, but not for a eight, six, and four-year-old who just got a new puppy. Because the premise of the story is that Santa is dying and the dog needs to sacrifice <laughs> itself in order to save Santa from <laughs> and oh. save Christmas. <laughs> Oh and so we showed this movie to buy ourselves some time. About 50 minutes in, the children are freaking out because the dog is about to die. And I remember Cammy tears streaming down her face, like shaking with sobs, saying, no, let Santa die. Save the dog. <laughs> Save the dog. Santa can die. It's fine. He's old. Save the dog. Save the puppy. Uh, and I have to confess that as disturbed I was that this is a children's movie for children, again, before Christmas, as disturbed as I was by the plot of this film, I felt pride in Cammie in that moment. Because what Cammie was turning down at that moment was like a lifetime of loot, right? All the stuff that Santa was going to deliver to her in years to come, she was willing to turn aside to save this puppy. Right. And I felt I felt proud of that. And I tell the story, Vanessa, because there are lots of reasons that parents are proud of their children. Right. Sometimes we're proud of, you know, the report cards or the artwork they make in school or how they perform on an athletic field or a dance competition or whatever. Right. And I didn't want to just tell a story about that. But this was an example of like sort of unselfishness, which made me proud. Right. But it also points to like the way parents are ever proud of their kids, whether it's about the sports field or a report card or an unselfish kid, if maybe what I'm really doing is being proud of myself for raising the kind of kid that would be that way. And and I worry about that a little bit, right? Because I wasn't the unselfish one, like Cammie was. She was the one that had that instinct, not me. And taking pride in it, in that, even like that kind of outburst that Santa should die, <laughs> taking pride in that outburst kind of transfers credit from her to me when it belongs to her, right? First of all, Matt, I love that story. I feel like so many parents can see themselves in, oh, I was trying to do a nice thing and this backfired. And I can just see Suki looking at all the kids being like, what? Why are you showing me this movie? <laughs> but I just agree with you. I think that like you can be proud of people who you don't even know. Right. Like I get proud of athletes. Like, look at you. The heart of the question that I am hearing you say is to what extent are we making something about ourselves when we are proud of others? And to what extent when we're proud, are we being too self-absorbed? Yeah, that, that really is the question. Because I think parenting or caregiving is a unique category where you feel responsibility for the outcomes of, you know, the people that you care for, what they're doing. But it's also, I'm led to this question because of the etymology of the word pride, which mm -hmm. has a complicated etymology that we might get into later in the episode. But historically, it means excess self-regard, right? Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. so what I'm thinking about is when you're proud of someone else, 
if pride is actually excess self-regard, I'm wondering, like, to what degree am I trying to take credit for what this other person is, is doing rather than giving them credit on their own? Oh, I'm really excited to talk to you about this, Matt. Me too. All right. Well, we are about to make all our listeners proud. Yeah. By doing a 30-second recap. Count me in. They will be proud. I will count you in. Three, two, one, go. So Harry is pissed. Everybody knew about the serious black betrayal and nobody told him and what the heck. And they go back to the dorm and he's pouting. And then it's Christmas and Hermione brings Crookshanks into the dorm and Ron is like, stop freaking doing that. And then there's Christmas dinner and Trelawney is like the 13th person is going to die. And then they go down to Hagrid's because Harry's pissed and uh, Buckbeak is going to be killed. And that's really upsetting. And Harry and Ron and Hermione are going to help Hagrid. 10 out of 10, right, Matt? Made you proud? Uh, yes. I didn't miss anything. So should we just skip you this week? I would be okay with that because this is, again, it's about being a team. And yeah. the only goal of this is, are we a good team? And I'm proud of the team we are, Vanessa. <laughs> it's also to remind people what happened in the chapter, but apparently that's secondary. Okay, Matt, on your mark, get set, Go. So Harry doesn't know how he gets back from Honeydukes, but he's very, very mad. And he goes up to bed and he falls asleep angry. And he wakes up angry and he's and he said, yeah, let's go talk to Hagrid. Let's see why he didn't tell us. And they go to Hagrid's, but Hagrid's very sad because Buckbeak is going to be killed. And they learn about how bad Azkaban is. And they go back and they have, uh, uh, they go back and then they wake up for Christmas. And oh my gosh, there's a firebolt. Where did the firebolt come from? And then they go to Christmas dinner. And at Christmas dinner, Trelawney says, one of you's going to die. Who got up first? And they go back. And they know who got up first, but, but Hermione talked to McGonagall and he loses the firebolt. Matt, I think that we should start with the firebolt because it gets to the heart of a lot of things about pride to me, right? About whether you can be proud of a physical object that you own and what that pride is about, right? Often having a really nice thing is about being proud of the status of how much money it means you made, but how does it being a gift complicate that? And Harry does feel a sense of pride in this broom, right? He certainly feels a sense of awe in this broom, right? The chapter ends and Ron and Harry are just staring at it, like being like, God, it's beautiful. A lot of the pride in the firebolt is about how Malfoy will feel worse because Harry has the firebolt. And I'm just trying to figure out what the loss is for Harry when McGonagall takes it. Because it's not just a strategic loss, right? He's not like, oh my God, but I'm not going to have it in time for the next match. And that means I'm going to lose. It is this completely understandable loss of like, you just got a new present and you want to play with it. But we know that Harry and Ron are going to get so mad. And I'm wondering if part of that is about the pride he felt in owning the best broom. Absolutely. That's a great question. I mean, I think it's both. I mean, there is the fact that he has no broom and the school's brooms are substandard, right? And they do want to win. I think that if he had been sent another Nimbus 2000, there would have been a lot of joy and a lot of anger if it had been taken away in the same manner, right? But all this is ramped up because of the pride of owning the most elite and the best, maybe unnecessarily best, right? Broom. You know, there's a an idiom from the English language is proud as a peacock, right? And the and the reason why mm-hmm. we think of things as proud as a peacock is because there's something showy about it, right? Like a, the firebolt is in excess of Harry's need. A Nimbus 2000 could do the job, but he gets to make the Slytherins jealous and upset because of how excellent and great it is, right? And so there's something showy about it. 
one of the things that I thought was tricky is I was thinking about pride in this chapter and for our conversation today, Vanessa, was how the meaning of pride has shifted in our language, right? Which is that prior to the gay civil rights movement, pride very much carried a negative connotation. It meant being overly showy, like trying to to show off something about yourself or show off something to to others. As I said, in the etymology I mentioned before, that it was about having excess self-regard and then also publicly excess self-regard. But actually, in my own life today, I think about pride as a virtue. I think about pride in a positive sense. And that's because the gay rights movement has owned it and said, it's not about being showy or excess self-regard. It's actually getting the regard we are due as humans, right? Right. And not feeling the need to cover or hide or feel ashamed of who we are, but actually to just embrace who we are and to demand that others embrace who we are. And that shift in language is one that I was really kind of tracking myself, right? And and I actually, in thinking about the story I would tell and thinking about the way I thought about this chapter, I was trying to track like, okay, what part of the legacy of the negative connotation of pride as sinful or shameful because too showy do I still hold on to where I don't want to tell a story where I'm proud of myself, right? And what part of the new meaning or new connotation of pride am I excited about and thinking about, yeah, own who you are, Cami, own your decisions or, or whatever. It's an interesting thing that's going on in this chapter. And the example you give of the firebolt is a really illuminating example in that regard because the firebolt is so in excess of what Harry needs to accomplish his work as a seeker. And his upset at it being taken away, I think you're right, isn't just about him losing a broom he had just replaced, but losing that broom, the best broom in the world that nobody else has. Matt, I'm so interested in this about like when you're like proud in a good way or proud in a bad way, right? We're really happy that like there's the month of gay pride and, you know, and there's a reclaiming of identity where you're proud and you march down a street and then white supremacy, if you're really proud of that and you march down the street, we're pretty against that, right? And and I think that that's true on these micro levels too, because I think there's an argument to be made that Harry's never gotten a freaking good Christmas present until two years ago, right? The first comment he makes is, oh, I know it's not from the Dursleys, right? And so part of me is like, yeah, kid, like you deserve this fancy broom. The other part of me is very confused about why he's proud of this broom, because I would be embarrassed on the pitch to have something that is so much better than what every other kid has. Like if he catches a snitch, isn't everyone just going to be like, well, of course you caught it. You have a better broom. And like there's something unsportsman about it to me. And so I just think pride is so interesting in how situational it is. Yeah, I think that's right. Because if pride is about self-worth and self-regard, whether excess self-regard or appropriate self-regard, because we're talking about it operating in both ways, right? It's about asserting self-worth. And that's always in the context of where and how others are assessing your worth, right? And so right. we know that Lucius Malfoy outfitted the Slytherins with Nimbus 2001s. Right? Like, they have the better brooms. This is part of the competition. It isn't fair, but, like, this team has, until the Firebolt, the fastest broom in existence. And then, because Slytherin is Gryffindor's Quidditch rival, in addition to being rival in so many ways, this broom also speaks back against a particular sort of context situation of their rivalry with the Slytherins, who are already equipping themselves with fast brooms, right? So, 
I think you're right. You could see the potential for a certain kind of embarrassment against the Hufflepuffs or whatever, right? The Hufflepuffs who maybe are using school brooms. If Harry gets the snitch on the firebolt, then is it? It's a Pyrrhic victory. Did he actually win, or is it just his brooms faster? But against the Slytherins who love to flaunt the fact that they are better equipped than everybody else, then the firebolt is exactly what they want to express that particular kind of self worth and self regard. And then it, it works. And so because it's the Slytherins, right? So it, it really is situational. And even against different opponents in a match, the, the firebolt may be a source of either pride or maybe some shame. Yeah. I mean, your question about Harry's pride and the firebolt just has me thinking about pride and Harry's character earlier in the chapter. So as we expertly noted in our 30-second recaps, at the beginning of the chapter, Harry's angry, right? He's heard the story about Sirius Black under the table at the Three Broomsticks, and he goes back to his room, and he's wondering why none of the adults in his life have told him the true story behind Sirius, right? And we as readers know that this had actually been anticipated by Arthur Weasley when Arthur Weasley said, whatever happens, whatever you learn, don't pursue Sirius. He knew that this would be the case. And so all these adults were not telling him for fear that he would react exactly the way he's reacting. But Harry has this reaction with Hermione and Ron the next morning after he wakes up, giving the impression that he wants to go after Sirius. He wants to avenge his his parents. And I was thinking about the relationship between pride and something like vengeance or this urge in Harry to avenge his parents, right? Where if pride in the older definition, if pride is about excess self-regard, what everyone expects around Harry, adults and Hermione and Ron included, is that Harry, when told the truth about what Sirius Black did, the quote-unquote truth about what Sirius Black did, he will believe that he is capable of doing something that he's not actually capable of doing. His anger and hatred will make him excessively regard his own skill in fighting this adult wizard, right? And that would just be reckless and and lead to a disaster, right? And so if pride is excess self-regard, what other emotions contribute to it, right? Hatred in this case, this hatred that Harry feels for Sirius makes him wrongly assess his own skill as a wizard and want to go and kill somebody. He probably doesn't have the skill to kill, right? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering about like how not only how pride is situational with respect to the others that we're interacting with, but also how it folds into or is complicated and strengthened by other emotions and affects. I mean, I just even wonder if he's thinking that far, right? If if it yeah. is pride or if it's just reckless. If it's just reckless, I can just end the sentence there, yeah. right? That he just doesn't care. And we we do know that Harry will say the line sometimes of like, I did beat Voldemort twice or three times, right, as a baby. And so, I and that does give him a false sense of himself. But it's almost a lack of pride too, right? It's a lack of valuing his own life and understanding that him being reckless with his own life would mean that Hermione and Ron would miss him and that people love him and would grieve him. He... Yeah, I don't know. I actually think it's like a lack of sense of self-worth that is motivating this. I know, but do you think that he thinks that he's going to go to Sirius? And I mean, what would actually happen is because Sirius is a talented wizard and there isn't some magical connection like there is with Voldemort, is that if Sirius was the person that we are led to believe that Sirius is at this moment, Sirius would just murder him within seconds, right? Totally. And that's not avenging anything, right? Like he wants to avenge. And so 
there must be like this urge in him to believe that he can do more than he's actually capable of. So I think you're right. There is absolutely this idea of like, I'm willing to risk my life and I'm willing to throw away my life for the sake of avenging my parents so long as I avenge my parents, so long as I actually do cause some harm to the one who deserves harm. This is the most dangerous kind of pride to me, right? Because part of why he wants to go and fight Sirius is because Draco goaded him, right? Yeah. And he lists yeah, that pretty right. early on. He's like, Draco said it. And it almost feels like if he were actually going to think about it, he would know exactly to your point, right, that he was going to die. Yeah. And it's just in this moment he doesn't care. What's more yeah. important is the attempt. At least I'll go down having tried to avenge yeah. my parents. At least I'll have been seen as someone who tried and who wasn't scared and who wasn't bullied. Yeah. And in my opinion, this is the kind of thing that gets young people to do really risky, really self-destructive things. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I hadn't been thinking about what Harry explicitly mentions very early in this conversation, which is Malfoy's already been goading me about this. He's already impugned my pride. He's already shamed him by saying, a, you know, a real wizard would have gone after Sirius. I certainly would. That's what Malfoy says, right? And so, yeah, it becomes a question of pride right away. Not because, not necessarily, I misread that. You're right. Not necessarily because Harry is, is wrongly assessing his skill, but because this rival, this 13-year-old rival has made it a question of his own personal integrity already. And Harry wants to show that he, that he has the appropriate sort of vengeful spirit. Or at least a kind of bravery, a willingness to to risk all to avenge his parents. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. It also makes me just think about the story in general. I, another thing that I thought you said, which was really, really right and really true, was you know, if Harry could stop thinking about what Malfoy said long enough to listen to how people around him would hurt if he did do this, and what would happen to him if he died, he would start to think about all this in a less individual and more social way, right? Which really is the struggle that Harry goes through through the whole series up to book seven. What he realizes in the final confrontation with Voldemort, I think, is that this actually isn't just about him being the boy who lived. It's actually about this whole community coming together to respond to the evil in their midst. And one of the subtle things that I recognize that I see the, the series of novels doing is trying to move away from a particular idea of Harry as the only one who can do anything and even move Harry away from that idea uh, and others around Harry from that idea towards this idea that 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 the community as a whole is what's needed to respond. Yeah, and that is where pride is absolutely necessary, right? It's where, like, there's a line, a fuzzy line between pride and, like, a sense of self-worth, right? And a sense right. of identity enough that you think people will miss me right? That yep. I'm inextricably tied. And this is, I mean, we can just point the finger entirely at the Dursleys here. He has this sense that people would actually be happier if he wasn't around, right? Yep. And that was instilled in him from a very young age. And so his yep. recklessness isn't about knowing the risks and doing it anyway. It's about having no sense that his life is actually worth saving. Yep. And it, and it points to this, like, again, this tension we're seeing between these two understandings of pride as excessive self-worth or appropriate self-worth, excessive self-regard or appropriate self-regard. Because it is true, by the end of the series, we realize that Harry has an indispensable role to play. 
But it's also true that a whole bunch of other people also have indispensable roles to play, right? That every one of them is the boy who lived or the girl who lived or the whoever who lived. Every one of them has a role to play in actually defeating Voldemort. And so while it's true that Harry is the only one that can play his role, it's false that he's the only one. There's this whole community and it takes all of them to meet the need. And so we end up at this place between the Dursleys and excess self-regard, right? between like, oh, your your contribution means nothing or your contribution is the only one that matters. It's actually all of us matter and we all have to, to work at it together. Yeah. Can I point us to a very different part yeah. of this chapter? I'm really curious what you make of the way that McGonagall treats Trelawney at this Christmas dinner. <laughs> so Trelawney enters the Christmas dinner. There are 12 people at the table and Dumbledore says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And Trelawney immediately starts with her divination talk, right? She's like, I saw myself here. And so who was I to not come? And then she, you know, brings her antics about s- someone's going to die if I sit down. And McGonagall starts mocking Trelawney. And I think that part of this is really strategy, right? Of like, stop threatening that kids who stand up are going to die, right? Like, this is bad teaching. This is like, do not do this. But McGonagall also mocks Trelawney, right? When Trelawney says, oh, where's Professor Lupin? McGonagall's like, well, don't you know? And that seems to me to be rooted in a kind of really ugly pride of like, I'm a reasonable person and I look down upon you, right? And I think that McGonagall comes by some of this honestly. I think it's probably exhausting after however many years of teaching with someone you're like really tired, first of all, of just like hearing their antics. But second of all, I was like having to convince students that they're not going to die, right? That's a really reckless thing that Trelawney engages in all the time. So I, I feel like this is McGonagall being like she disgraces, you know, the profession of teaching. But what McGonagall ends up doing in order to point that out is disgracing herself <laughs> by like not being collegial to someone on Christmas. I, I think it's really interesting the turn you took at the end there, because to me, this really is the question I have about this exchange. Like, to what degree is it personal and to what degree is it professional? Right. Right. I feel because I feel like McGonagall has both concerns with respect to Trelawney. I think McGonagall thinks that divination is not a legitimate area of wizarding study. Or if it is, transfiguration is a superior area of wizarding study, right? And I might be rejecting Certainly. here because I, you know, I teach a religion at a secular university, right? But but that, or I teach the humanities in a place where, you know, science and technology is really the coin of the realm in, in university life, right? So I think this kind of disciplinary pride and disciplinary shame is something that happens. And I see this as part of what's going on between McGonagall and Trelawney. But you also get the sense that even if, divination were an absolutely respected discipline within wizarding scholarly circles that McGonagall just didn't like Trelawney also personally, right? right? And so and so it's both things going on and the overlap between the personal and the professional and the degree to which professional pride can can be transmuted into or take the form of like personal affront or personal shaming is is I think what's going on in this exchange or part of what's going on in this exchange. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Matt, I feel like we have to talk about the other big thing in this chapter, which is, you know, this visit to Hagrid's hut. And Harry goes down ready to rage at Hagrid. How dare you have not told me about this key part of my story and my identity. And instead, Hagrid is sobbing because he's essentially being sued for, you know, Buckbeak having attacked Draco. And he thinks that Buckbeak is going to be killed. And in this conversation, right, he says, I would just let Buckbeak go, but I'm afraid of doing anything illegal because I don't want to go back to Azkaban. And he describes why Azkaban is so bad, right? He says that it it makes you only remember the bad things that have happened to you, and it makes you forget who you are. And to me, that is the diminishment of all sense of pride, right? That is the diminishment of a sense of self, and that you even just have the pride and rights of a human being. And I'm wondering if you see that as being part of Pride or if something else is going on here that Hagrid is describing. Yeah, I think that in the in the positive sense, we've been talking about Pride in terms of appropriate self-regard, right? Like this idea that all sense of self is gone or the only sense of self that you have left is everything bad you've ever done or has happened to you, right? That's shame. 
right? That's the opposite of pride, which is mm-hmm. which is shame, which is exactly what those who want to to embrace pride are trying to speak back against the imposition of shame upon others, right? Yeah, I think that's a great window into why we might think about how important pride is, right? How it can't just be a negative thing, how it can't just be uh, one of the seven deadly sins or whatever, as it is in the Christian tradition, right? How there is a, a part of it we have to hold on to in order to stave off the the really withering and devastating effects of of shame. And in particular, as as Hagrid articulates and as you draw out the self-erasing, the self-effacing effects, how you actually lose yourself under the weight of shame and how, how pride is a way to kind of keep that sense of self intact so you can be in the world in a real way. Yeah. I think we see a very micro version of that also in, in a quick moment between Dumbledore and Snape, which was a moment that on some level brought me a lot of joy because, you know, they're sitting around the Christmas table and Dumbledore is like, Christmas crackers! And he's so excited to do Christmas crackers, which I just think is very cute to watch that level of enthusiasm in an adult um, about a silly ritual. But, you know, a a hat with a vulture on it comes out of the Christmas cracker for Snape. And because his pride has recently been injured with this Boggart situation in which Mm. Neville was encouraged to picture Snape in a hat similar to that, Snape can't find the joy and the humor in it, right? So Dumbledore takes that hat and puts it on and wears it with pride, right? There's something wonderful about being someone with a tremendous amount of power and being willing to look silly, But Snape, having been previously diminished, doesn't have access to that silliness. Yeah. And just, again, how circumstantial these things are, right? That Sirius can somehow get through the Dementors and Hagrid, who is just as innocent as Sirius, but having a half-giant identity and living on the margins in all sorts of ways, doesn't have access to the same resistance against the Dementors. It just really speaks to how personal any moment is, right? Where Dumbledore can be excited about this hat and the colleague sitting right next to him, who is also a very powerful person at the school, an excellent potion master who's head of a house, cannot put on the same hat. Yeah. And also, I think, as you noted, just like how pride and power are just caught up in each other all the time, right? Like, if pride is a question of self-regard, and always within the context of how others regard you, then how others regard you and the power you have with respect to others is going to condition it. And so a person as powerful as Dumbledore has some freedom to move and to act in ways that are not shameful that others don't have, right? And and so, as in so many cases, like questions of power are always at play. Yeah. Matt, we are now moving on to the sacred practice of Chavruta. Chavruta is where one of us brings a question and an answer. Then the other person will also ask a question and an answer in response to that. And the idea is that it is only through conversation, through complex conversation, that we can come to some sort of truth in conversation. And so I bring a question and a potential answer, and you will be inspired by my question and answer to bring your own question and answer. Are you ready to be inspired by me, Matt? I accept. This sounds great. 
So Matt, I think a lot of people read Hermione as vindicated at the end of this novel, right? The boys get really upset at her that she's wrong, that the broom was safe all along. But a lot of readers are like, no, 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 no. She was afraid that the broom was from Sirius Black and the broom was from Sirius Black. Hermione, always right. And so my question for you is, is that true? Is Hermione vindicated at the end of this book that she was correct, that it is from Sirius Black? And I want to answer that this is actually a moment of a lack of vindication in Hermione. This is very much coming from a fear mindset. I think it comes from a great place and a place of concern. But I also think that this is an overreach of concern for her and that she's not vindicated at the end of the book that Sirius Black gave it to Harry because what she's actually speaking to is not the specificity of Sirius, but that this impending danger is always trying to get into Harry when really this book is about the opposite. This book is about how there's a lot of goodwill toward Harry out in the world and it's trying to get to him too. You're right. I mean, she's not fully vindicated by this response because she was wrong about the intention behind the gift. I think another thing that she's right about, even if she's wrong about the intention behind the gift, and this is important to the plot of the novel and actually is vindicated, is that, you know, Sirius is preoccupied with Harry, right? I mean, everybody knows this, though, right? Like, the whole Wizarding World thinks that Sirius is preoccupied with Harry. But I guess this is another way in which she's wrong because I think that what everyone reads as these attempts to get close to Harry, the the breaking into the common room, the Gryffindor common room, for example, are, are actually not attempts to get at Harry. They're attempts to get at Scabbers, right? And so even the preoccupation with Harry is not a preoccupation with Harry. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And, and I think that this sense that Sirius is preoccupied with Harry in a dangerous way or preoccupied with him at all is leading to more danger to Harry. The Dementors are all around. They're causing harm to him. They're making him fall off his broom from great heights. This is because people think threat is everywhere. And I don't think that they're wrong to to think threat is everywhere. Everything they know about what happened with Sirius could and should lead them to believe that Harry needs to be protected. But the fact that she happened to be right about the source of this gift, I don't think vindicates Hermione at the end of of the novel. I think you're right. I, I like your answer. Well, what is your response question and answer? So in response then, you know, we frame this around Hermione's reading of Sirius's gift. I want to ask, is it right of Sirius to give this <laughs> gift? If he knows the world around Harry, believes that Sirius is this big threat. Mm-hmm. Maybe he should sign it from somebody else, right? Maybe he should send a note giving credit to somebody else, right? I mean, is it right of Sirius to send this gift? I think it's right. He can send a replacement gift. But I think that he probably needs to do a little work making it less mysterious. I think he's not well assessing how much the fear around Harry and around him is actually putting Harry at risk in the present. And he needs to lower the temperature on that fear around Harry rather than raise it. Even though he should send him a broom, he should make it from somebody else, somebody who can't be traced or whatever, like an adoring fan from someplace else. Who knows? Yeah, I don't think Sirius should have sent a present. <laughs> I think it is such a loving thing to want to celebrate someone and to want to send something to someone. But I think that that is making gift giving about yourself and wanting to feel good rather than about the receiver of the gift. 
I do not begrudge Sirius this. I mean, Harry needs a broom. There's got to be a way for him to figure out how to get a broom. But Harry can afford a broom. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He can't afford this broom. I also think it's a super showy gift for a godfather to swoop in and be like, here's the most expensive thing ever. I don't think it's an appropriate gift for a 13-year-old child. Quite frankly, I think it's a prideful gift, right? It's like, I'm proud of being your godfather, and I'm proud that I have the money where I can buy you these things. It's all good intentions. I just don't think it is well thought through, which is one of the most aggravating things about gifts to me is when, right, it's like giving someone a puppy and like not checking if they're like allowed dogs in their apartment. It's like, well, that's nice, but what, am, uh, what, and now I have to be evicted? So, no, bad job, serious. He's created enmity amongst Harry's friends. Harry doesn't even get to keep the broom. This is a bad present. I do love the idea that he sent Harry a Christmas gift. And I think that it's sort of a missed opportunity. If it was something that was objectively not dangerous, right? If he had sent a pair of socks and been like, dear Mm -hmm. Harry, I actually love you a great deal. This is a huge misunderstanding. You'll understand soon. Exo Sirius Black. I think that those would also be confiscated from Harry and like McGonagall would have to check them, but who cares because they're socks and it would put a seed of doubt in Harry's mind that maybe Sirius isn't a bad guy. It's a missed opportunity, Sirius. You went for showy. I don't know. I think at this point in the story, he's not really willing to, to listen to Sirius's love notes. I agree that it's a it's a <laughs> it's not a good gift. He's not paying attention to how it will feed into the the fear around Harry and at the school. But I also think that there might there might be another way to I think it's okay for Harry to want a broom more than anything else in the world. And I think it's okay for his godfather to get him a broom or find a replacement broom. I feel like there's he's got connections, man. He's got to figure out a different way to get him a broom. He has no connections. That's the point. Lupin thinks he's a murderer. Yeah, I guess that's true. Matt, thank you so much for doing this Chavruta with us. Hermione, you were right on the facts, but wrong in all the ways that matter. Sorry, love you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail this week is from Kristen. Hi, Vanessa and Matt. My name is Kristen, and first of all, I want to thank you both for having these conversations and for creating such a unique, thoughtful place to discuss texts. I'm a middle school English teacher, so using reading to drive reflection and self-improvement is really important to me, and I try to implement your practices and your approach to studying texts in my own classroom. Your episode on book two, episode five, The Whomping Willow, got me thinking about the failed pedagogy at Hogwarts and in our public schools. Dumbledore placed The Whomping Willow at Hogwarts to make school accessible to Lupin, something that in our school system would be called an accommodation. However, the accommodation that he made, while effective for that student, is undeniably a dangerous one to have on campus, putting the needs of one student over the safety of others. Additionally, it made me wonder, Was Lupin the only student who needed an accommodation like this? There had to have been other students who struggled with circumstances out of their control, who would have benefited from the attention and help of an adult. Why did Lupin get that special attention from Dumbledore, even to the detriment of his classmates? Was it because his need was the most obvious? Because of a bond he had with Dumbledore? Because he, for whatever reason, took up more space in the Hogwarts ecosystem? At my school, we are frequently creating specialized education plans for students with special needs, which is fantastic, but these students are usually the ones whose guardians are present and involved in their education and help to advocate for them, or whose needs are the most obvious for whatever reason. It makes me wonder how many students we're not seeing, how many are slipping through the cracks. There are many students who would probably benefit from having accommodations, but because they have nobody to advocate for them, their needs present as behavior issues, or they simply do not take as much take up as much space in the room, they slip through the cracks, like I can only believe many students at Hogwarts do. So I would like to offer a blessing for those students. I'm sorry for the ways that we failed you. Please know that you matter. You are so much more than a grade could ever express, and I hope that we can do better for you. I would also like to offer a blessing for the teachers at Hogwarts and for my fellow Muggle teachers. Our job often feels impossible, and while we would love to always have the right answers, we don't. So I offer a blessing of strength, wisdom, and encouragement to my fellow educators. I know you're doing your best. May we always seek to make our classrooms places where all students are seen. Thank you. Kristen, thank you so much for this really useful voicemail. Having worked in education, depending on what you count as working in education from somewhere from 10 to 17 years. I really feel what you're saying and, you know, with limited resources, having to 
choose which children to prioritize. I even feel that in like just choosing as a stepmom, right? Like which kid to side with in a fight to make it end sometimes, right? This, these decisions are so fraught and they get even more fraught when you have multiple students and parents involved. And I really appreciate you drawing these comparisons so we can see this in the Harry Potter world too. These are really hard things. And I'm grateful that there are thoughtful teachers like you out there who are doing their best to make good decisions in the flawed world that we live in. Yeah, Kristen, I especially appreciate your your asking the question of why why Lupin got this accommodation. And in general, I think that you're probably right. I think that this group of four students, you know, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, took up a lot of space at the school. They were popular and well-known, and they asserted themselves and had a kind of charisma that made other students pay attention to them and probably teachers pay attention to them. And you're probably right. That is why this particular accommodation was was made. And so I'm really grateful for your reminder to, to pay attention to to all sorts of students who inhabit our spaces in all different ways, as myself an educator too. So thank you for this, and thank you for this blessing upon all of our students. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Alexander White, who was 32, a writer, a lover, and a compassionate soul. Kumari, who was 22 and good. Oscar Daniel Rivera Blake, who was born 13 weeks early, a beloved firstborn child. Betty Jo Davis, 90, a true Hufflepuff, a brilliant wordsmith and magical grandmother. Armine, who was 107, a mother, a grandmother, and a Scrabble lover. Marilyn Jean, who is 62, a mother, a comforter, and welcoming of everyone. Joe Kirschenbaum, who is 101. Brad Crawford, who is 71, a husband, brother, father, grandfather, and an excellent chef. A. Grace Pearson, who is 22, a sauce witch, visionary, and beloved Dubba. And all of the victims of the Western Kentucky tornado that hit in December of 2021. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, it's now time for us to offer our blessings for characters in the book. Who would you like to bless this week? Vanessa, I would like to bless Buckbeak this week. There's something really sad about Buckbeak's obliviousness when the trio and Haggard are talking about the fact that he's going to have to be euthanized, that Buckbeak's just there enjoying his dinner, whatever bloody mess that dinner is, you know? Uh, and, and also I spoke about our dog and in and, and my story and about this children's movie where a, a dog is, has to be sacrificed for Santa, right? And it just... <laughs> 
I have a real tender spot in my heart for for pets who don't have this awareness of this existential awareness of their own mortality, but we do. And it just made me kind of sad for Buckbeak, even though I know it ends well. It made me sad for Buckbeak in this moment, maybe sad for, you know, our vulnerable animal companions. And and so just a blessing for him and a blessing for all of them. I would like to bless Professor Lupin, who is sick on Christmas. And we know that he isn't sick, right? He's He is curled up as a dog in his office because he's been given his wolfbane potion. But he's alone on Christmas and, you know, is treated as though this thing that he is and that isn't at all to do with any choice that he made is shameful and that he isn't safe around other people. And I just think it can be really hard to be alone on a holiday. So I would like to bless Professor Lupin. Vanessa, next week we are reading book three, chapter 12, The Patronus. And I think I'd like you to tell us a story about inspiration. (laughs) What if it's an inspiring story about inspiration? I believe it will be both things. I think it will be an inspiration Mm. that teaches us about inspiration. Well, everybody, before we give our thanks, we just have one reminder, which is that there are spaces available for What Matters, our new amazing class that we are so excited to launch. And we have at least two full scholarships available. And you can find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. This was a Not Sorry production, a feminist production company. Our executive producer and overlord is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas, and our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Kristen for their blessing and their voice memo. Thanks also to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and to everyone who sent in the names of those they have loved and lost this week. I'm going to disparage this movie. Can I say the name of the movie? (laughs) Depends. Okay. We put the kids in front of a movie that I think is from the Airbud franchise called Santa Claus. (laughs) Okay.